Good afternoon. It's Friday the 3rd of November 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today, uh, I've got Vanessa Bailey via video link from Damascus, and Ben Rubin is with us today as well. Um, we're going to get kicked off uh, today with this. Uh, this is GB News, and this uh, type of headline has been uh, running across the mainstream press. Uh, so it's fury as one million pro-Palestine protesters set to march through London on Armistice Day. Um, this is uh, the weekly now, every Saturday, Palestinian uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations going through London. Uh, there is going to be one next Saturday, the 11th. There's one this coming Saturday on the on the 4th and tomorrow, and one next Saturday on the 11th. Uh, and because it's Armistice Day, this is causing some trouble. So uh, let's just have a look at Nigel Farage's comments on this. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, in 1918, the guns fell silent on the Western Front and all the other theatres of war. It is a very, very important moment in our national story. And it's something actually that has very much been respected in recent years in a remarkable way on top of Remembrance Sunday, which of course takes place at the Cenotaph, um, a ceremony that for years the Queen attended, and of course King Charles will be there on Sunday the 12th. But I find it pretty extraordinary that there is a big pro-Palestine march, in fact demands from some for a million strong march to come through the centre of London on the 11th of November. Now, I have said before, to great criticism, that I've worried in the past about a lot of people coming into Britain with whom we have no shared history and no shared culture. And this, I think, is a very good example of that. Should this march go ahead, and especially should it be allowed to go down Whitehall past the Cenotaph? And I think the answer just has to be no. So my understanding is that the organizers have already stated that the march will not be going down Whitehall past the Cenotaph. Uh, but uh, there, there's something quite worrying about this particular narrative, and that is that there's an attempt to, to conflate immigration with uh, a peace march. Some people are arguing that there's more to it than a peace march, but uh, if, in fact, two or, two or 300,000 people out on the streets, uh, it is a peace march. Uh, so let's look at the Express and their headline this morning. Uh, British Army veteran says million march protest on Remembrance Day risks kicking off. So the, the rhetoric is starting to build uh, to, to drive people together to start some civil unrest here, it seems to me. Uh, this is Douglas Murray uh, in, on Twitter. UK Hamas supporters are now planning a million man march on Remembrance Day. So this isn't about stopping the bombing in Gaza. Uh, as far as he's concerned, this is about Hamas supporters, Million Man March on Remembrance Day. First of all, it's not Remembrance Day. That's the following day. But anyway, let's not worry about that. They plan to defame our war dead and desecrate the Cenotaph itself. I'd like to see the evidence for that. Uh, this is the tipping point. If such a march goes ahead, then the people of Britain must come out and stop these barbarians, is what he said. Uh, Lawrence Fox, uh, with an extremely emotive image, uh, of a soldier in silhouette kneeling in front of the Union flag, it's time to stand and be counted. So the rhetoric very much is one of civil unrest, pitting one against the other. Uh, and I thought that there was a somewhat uh, ironic that uh, Nigel Farage begins by pointing out that Armistice Day was the day that the guns and the bombs stopped, uh, when in fact that's what most people are calling for in Gaza. Uh, the guns stopping, uh, it gets even better because uh, many mainstream news uh, outlets, including the Jerusalem, uh, sorry, the Jewish Chronicle here, uh, government urged to deploy military over Million Man Palestine March on Remembrance Day. I think this is a very dangerous development. Uh, and I think what really we need at this point is just to take a step back, calm down a little bit. Uh, let's get the uh, the, the action in the Middle East stopped, but most importantly, let's not fall into the trap of believing uh, that uh, what's going on here is uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming out uh, to be pro-Hamas or to 
promote the idea that Israel needs to cease to exist. Uh, Vanessa, let me just ask you for a bit of comment on this. Uh, we shouldn't be allowing ourselves to fall into this divide and conquer, conquer rhetoric. Well, I think also, Mike, the high risk is of a false flag. Uh, with one million people on the street, the potential for an attack being orchestrated against civilians and then blamed on Hamas is extremely high. I talked about it um, in, in last week's program. Uh, and that idea is now being spoken about by a number of analysts, uh, particularly US-based uh, on social media. So I think, yes, you're absolutely right. But my greatest fear at the moment is false flag time. Uh, yes, and well, uh, the question is if there was any kind of uh, action uh, in London next on, on Saturday the 11th, who would be the instigator of it? Uh, keep uh, watching till the end of the programme because we need to discuss this a little bit more. Now, Vanessa, let's just uh, move on to Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, so this, of course, is one of the images from um, the bombing of Jabalia camp one of the most densely populated areas of Gaza, but right now the majority of Gaza looks very much like this. Um, I think to date there are 600 killed, um, again, around 50% children, and hundreds more. I can't even imagine the numbers of people buried under the rubble. And in fact, the first video that I want to show was published today showing uh, a Palestinian man in Gaza trying to find the bodies of his four children. The cameraman keeps trying to comfort him by saying they're in heaven, but it's a distressing video. There isn't any bloodshed, but it's distressing from an emotional perspective. You'll notice also the tools that he has are, are next to nothing to dig through that, that volume of rubble because, of course, many of the paramedics uh, centers, many of uh, the rescue centers, the civil defense have been bombed or disabled. So they're unable to get to these areas to even help dig out the bodies uh, of children and civilians buried. Uh, according to Euromed Monitor, Israel has dropped the equivalent to two nuclear bombs on Gaza since the 7th of October. Um, and uh, moving on the number of hospitals that are now completely out of action, um, it's cut off slightly, but the majority of hospitals are either functioning um, very poorly, people are being operated on um, without anesthetic, so the pain level is extremely high. Uh, the only cancer hospital is out of action, and most of the pediatric hospitals are now out of action uh, completely. Um, now, there has been a considerable groundswell of opposition to um, the Israeli war crimes in Gaza. Probably one of the most uh, important ones for me, and certainly one of the strongest worded letters that I've seen, is from a United Nations human rights official who resigned over a textbook case of genocide in Gaza, and his name, moving on to the next slide, um, is Craig Mochiba. He was the director of the New York office of the UN High Commissioner of Human Rights. And I took an extract. He's written a four-page letter to Volker Turk. Um, so I recommend people going online to, to read the whole letter. I took out an extract. Um, this is a textbook case of genocide. He wrote in an October the 28th letter to Volker Turk, the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. Western governments are wholly implicit in the horrific assault. 
not only are they refusing to meet their treaty obligations, but he goes on to say that they are in fact actively arming the assault, providing economic intelligence support and giving a political and diplomatic cover for Israel's atrocities. Um, equally, uh, Vaselina Bencia, Russia's representative to the UN, has put out a statement saying that Israel is an occupying power and has no right to defend itself. Just to qualify exactly what he did say, um, Mike, on the next slide. The only thing the US and its allies can muster is continued pronouncements about Israel's alleged right to self-defense. Although as an occupying power, it does not have that power as confirmed by the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice handed down in 2004. Now, I'm assuming Nabensia is referring to the territories that Israel uh, occupied in the 1967 Six-Day War, which include East Jerusalem, West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. And as such, it's not recognized as a legal occupation. So as such, I'm guessing that is what he means, that they don't have a right to self-defense under international law. Then we have a video from um, the representative or the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, Wang Wenbin, who also speaks out quite strongly. If you can roll the video. Palestine领土长期被非法占领，巴勒斯坦人民独立建国的权利被长期忽视，巴勒斯坦民众的基本权利长期没有得到根本保障，这一历史不公，不应再继续下去了。Um, so uh, Israel accuses Bolivia of capitulation to terrorism and the Ayatollah regime in Iran because Bolivia severs ties with Israel over crimes against humanity. In the last two days, also Bahrain um, has severed uh, economic ties with Israel. Moving on to a Dutch politician, Silvana Simons, in Dutch Parliament in the debate before the European summit. She was the first uh, black leader of parliament uh, in, in the Netherlands, um, omitting the context of 75 years of dehumanization, displacement, house theft, destruction, robbery, ethnic cleansing and murder at the hands of Israel makes the Netherlands not only complicit in the dehumanization of the Palestinians, uh, but also in the legitimization of illegal colonial settlements. And by allowing this for decades, the Netherlands, in collaboration with European and American allies, has single-handedly placed Israel above the law with dire consequences. Every person that falls victim is a victim of colonialism. And once more, the Netherlands is also to blame. Then moving on to Euromed Monitor, a couple of reports from them. First of all, they, they're putting out strong statements that Europe must stop its support of Israel's ongoing war crimes in Gaza. Then a second report from them uh, entitled, As Israel Expands Its Ground Offensive, We Warn of Bloodbath in the Gaza Street. And contained within that report, they point out um, that their team has documented, if we can move on, please, uh, documented multiple uh, cases of deep cracks in the skin of the hands and bodies of Palestinian citizens and rescue workers who came into contact with corpses and rubble due to dangerous chemicals used in Israeli rockets and missiles, of course, supplied um, by the U.S. alliance. The human rights organization warned that Israel's escalation of its retaliatory policies and genocidal approach for its widespread destruction of Gaza's basic civilian infrastructure appears to be part of a plan for forced displacement and transfer, and it is in violation of international human law. Then I just want to show a very quick video of yesterday um, what appears to be white phosphorus being used against uh, an UNRWA school in Shati Beach Camp, again, one of the most densely populated areas of Gaza. If you can roll the video. It's worth noting that if white phosphorus comes into contact with human skin, it can burn uh, even down to the bone. Um, again, uh, Euromed Monitor, egregious acts of torture and abuse committed by Israeli army against Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. To my knowledge, there's no Hamas in the West Bank. So this is clearly 
genocide uh, that is going on here. And there are distressing videos available online showing uh, much of that torture of Palestinian civilian prisoners. Um, the organization said that at least three detainees are seeing are seen being subjected to the so-called wheel method, where the victim is forced to assume the position of a car tire while being raised, hung, and brutally subjected to severe beatings without any cries for help being taken into account. Or the ghost method is also documented in the videotapes, which depict victims being hung from a hook or a door handle and lifted by the tightening of handcuffs so that only their feet or toes touch the floor. Victims are then severely beaten. And it's not only Palestinians that are coming under attack. In the next video, we see Jews that had put out Palestinian flags in support of Gaza um, from their houses in Mir Sharim in Jerusalem were beaten up by the Zionist police security forces. <laughs> And there are multiple marches um, of Jews basically coming out in support um, for Gaza. This is just one example of the Toronto 100K march. Thank you. Yes, and Vanessa, I mean, it's quite, uh, it has been quite staggering how the, uh, the, the um, Jewish protests have been, or demonstrations have been taking place in the United States as well. I mean, we had the, the demonstration out, uh, in Congress to sit in, and then in New York a few days last weekend, uh, the uh, uh, was Grand Central Station, the same thing again. So, you know, Jewish communities around the world are speaking out on this. Yeah, and, and actually I had a number of messages and, and calls after uh, last week's program from Jews saying to me that they agree with the message that Judaism is not Zionism and Zionism is an enemy of Judaism. It is anti-Semitic. So um, nice to have that feedback. Yes. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Right, now let's uh, move back to the UK then. And uh, well, the AI Safety Summit, Summit, I talked about this on Monday Debbie was talking about this on Wednesday. So look, what, what kind of AI are we talking about here? They're calling this frontier AI. Uh, this is highly capable general purpose AI models uh, that can perform a wide variety of tasks uh, and match or exceed the capabilities present in today's most advanced models, computer models, that is. Uh, and so they're asking about the dangers. Of course, that's what Rishi's been saying about, uh, talking about. So, uh, so they're saying, what are the dangers? The removal of the human being from the decision-making process is, of course, uh, one of the dangers. Uh, and I mean, I would say that uh, this might be as simple uh, as interaction with your bank, for example, or with a utility company, or as many have uh, already experienced uh, an online platform like YouTube or, or Facebook. Trying to deal with the censorship issue is uh, pretty significant problem when you're up against uh, computer models and AI. Uh, but uh, just consider what would happen or what will happen rather when these uh, same types of models are used, deployed in the area of public health uh, uh, or in the justice system um, or uh, or for, just as a couple of examples. Now, uh, Rishi did give a presentation. We'll just show this uh, this first. He was looking very dapper there, but outside uh, this the summit, uh, venue, then he spoke to the press, uh, and this is what he had to say. Well, the people developing this technology themselves have raised the risk that AI may pose, and it's important to not be alarmist about this. There's debate about this topic. People in the industry themselves don't agree, and we can't be certain. But there, there is a case to believe that it may pose risks on, the, on a scale like pandemics and nuclear war, and that's why, as leaders, we have a responsibility to act to take the steps to protect people, and that's exactly what we're doing. We've created an AI safety institute here in the UK. So on the scale of pandemics or nuclear war is the, is the danger, but don't worry, we're going to deregulate because that regulation stifles innovation. Um, so he talked about the world's first AI safety institute. This is the graphic they put out for this. This is cementing the UK 
as a world leader in AI safety. And we should make no mistake, what they're doing is using the MHRA model here, uh, just as with uh, uh, medical, medical devices and vaccines and so on. Uh, they're attempting to create uh, the global regulator for AI in the UK, which effectively would do no regulation at all, would effectively be an enabler, uh, in fact. Uh, so this was the declaration that they pushed out, or at least this is the graphic that they pushed out describing the declaration. This is the world's first agreement on safe and responsible development of frontier AI, 28 countries from across the globe and the EU identifying AI opportunities and risks. And you'll notice that opportunities come before risks. And this is very much the same as the vaccine model for COVID-19, uh, building a shared understanding of these risks uh, and international collaboration on science and research. So uh, let me welcome Ben to the program. Uh, ben, you've been watching this very closely. I have, and um, the UK has really placed itself at the centre of everything this week. It's been quite remarkable uh, to see all of the activity going on. You've already talked about the um, safety summit at Bletchley Park, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But, but running in parallel, uh, literally on the same day, as we've had a whole bunch of other events running uh, in this country. One of them was the AI Fringe event, which was directly linked to the AI Safety Summit. Um, it's been running all week, including running today at the British Library. I actually attended yesterday to hear from um, a bunch of the UK regulators and how they're looking to implement AI. And uh, I'll talk about that um, in a moment. Uh, but we've also had the King's Fund annual conference. The King's Fund is a think tank uh, that uh, focuses on the UK health system. So obviously a, a big deal when it comes to the NHS. They've been talking a lot about artificial intelligence and how it's going to um, uh, underpin the future of the, of, of, of the UK health system. And we've also had at the same time uh, an event called Anthropy, which uh, Debbie and I have spoken about recently, uh, which has been held at the Eden Project, which is about inspiring a better Britain and that um, markets itself as, a, as essentially a Davos-style event. Literally, they describe themselves as a Davos-style event that takes place on the South Coast. Um, and also ARC, which is the, an international community with a vision for a better world. Um, and ARC is a fascinating proposition. We've already talked about Douglas Murray and um, his, I would regard as inflammatory comments about the protests that are going to be taking place over the next few weeks. I think that he's really playing with fire there. Um, and ARC has positioned itself almost as an antidote to the World Economic Forum. This is the, um, the kind of uh, the, 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 the conservative um, take as opposed to the progressive take on, on globalism. Um, and uh, when it launched, it was very much about injecting new thinking, new ideas, untainted by the, the past, looking to the future. Um, so obviously they've reached for Michael Gove to do a keynote speech on the first day of their event, uh, which I think tells you everything that you need to know about ARC. Uh, a lot of people were holding out um, uh, quite a bit of hope, actually. It looked potentially like quite an interesting um, uh, event that was that was being run an interesting uh, an interesting uh, 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 think tank essentially coming up with ideas for the future but actually as it's manifested uh, it's really just same old same old as far as I can tell in the presence of Michael Gove I think is a great example of that um, anthropy also has essentially revealed itself if it hadn't already right I mean it basically is going to mark it as a Davos style event um, but just today on Twitter, it has announced that, um, that they have received full blessing from the, the, the UK Uniparty, essentially. So all three leaders from the main UK political parties um, have um, come out and said that that anthropy is a relevant and impactful force for the UK. They've written letters that you can go and find on the anthropy app if you want to download that and really interestingly and i just talked to brian about this earlier anthropy is using language that we know is employed by common purpose uh, this idea of leaving your ego and your silo in particular getting people to break out of their silos is language that common purpose use in their in their matrix courses and uh, that is absolutely slap bang in the middle of the Anthropy event, they're using it on their signage. I think that that is an incredibly interesting 
development. So there, there appear to be some close links between Common Purpose, who actually Brian and I talked about um, a couple of days ago on the column, um, and Anthropy, and I look forward to, to investigating that much further. Um, but obviously, the big news is, is AI. Uh, Mike's already talked about the, um, the, 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 the work done at Bletchley this week. Um, in parallel to that, an executive order has also been signed by Joe Biden in the US. And uh, this is all about artificial intelligence, safety, security, and trust. Don't worry, guys. Joe Biden is on the case. How could you possibly argue with safety and security and trust for the use of artificial intelligence? Um, obviously, though, when you dig into it, there is an agenda at play here. And essentially what we're looking at is a way of enshrining critical race theory and these concepts of uh, equity, diversity, social justice, which are in effect neo-Marxist. Uh, language, neo-Marxist concepts into um, into in, into U.S. law, and you, you see this absolutely everywhere. Um, so let me read a couple of excerpts here. So irresponsible uses of AI can lead to and deepen discrimination, bias, and other abuses in justice, healthcare, and housing. To ensure that AI advances equity and civil rights, the president directs the following additional actions. We must provide clear guidance to landlords, federal benefits programs, and federal contractors. So that's anyone who works with the US government, right? and there's a huge variety of organizations that work with the US government. They're being directed to keep AI algorithms from being used to exacerbate discrimination. And they also need to address algorithmic discrimination through training, technical assistance, and coordination between the Department of Justice and federal civil rights offices. And all of this is being done in the development of the AI ecosystem and how this technology is being deployed. And it's being deployed extensively by governments, not just in the US, but globally. And we're just going to run a little film here now to talk about how that's manifesting in here in the UK. Uh, they are a cultural technology. So in the same way that a library is a cultural technology and large language models like ours, as I say, they've read everything. They've read everything that's ever been digitized. So not quite everything, but you know, everything that's been digitized. And of course, that then reflects the prejudices and biases of the past. Much like a library, if you've got, the British Library reflects the biases and prejudices of the past in the pages of its books. And of course, if you insensitively pick a book at random and ask it um, for a hero or ask it for, it is, it is going to um, represent the, the historical biases that are inherent in that cultural technology. Um, there are a couple of things you can do about that in libraries. You can burn books um, or you can be rather more sensitive about which books you choose and how you choose them and you can apply a level of intelligence to how you use uh, a library. which is the same thing as burning books, right? And this is how they are training these models. They are restricting the information that is being introduced into the model, and it has the same net impact as, as burning books, right? Um, he continues. In, in AI, I think it, it's much the same with large language models. Um, it, they, they, they do absolutely reflect those biases. There's some very clever maths you can do to start taking out biases. So one of the things we do is in the, the big vector space of meaning in which we operate, if you take a word which is gendered in the corpus, say uh, doctor would be uh, more associated um, with, with men rather than women, we can just correct for that bias in the, in the math to make sure that it isn't uh, a gendered word in our, in our corpus. So there's, there's clever stuff you can do, but the, 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 the big picture is you need to be cognizant that there is bias in the training mm -hmm. data, mm -hmm. there is bias in our history, and you need to use that cultural technology as you would use other cultural technologies with an eye to that bias and with an eye to making the future world better than the past world it was trained on. Okay, you get that. Our history is biased. It needs to be artificially manipulated and changed in order to make it unbiased. And the people who are the adjudicators of this are people like this gentleman here, Sean Williams, who is the CEO of Autogen AI. This is actually from earlier on this year. I think it's about six or seven months old, this film. 
It's from an Institute for Government event, um, which was attended. And actually, maybe the panel was hosted by Lord Hallam, who is a Labour peer. So this is the top level of uh, British government. And what they were discussing is using artificial intelligence to direct 300 billion pounds of government spend, that's taxpayer money, uh, in ways that will artificially restructure our society towards a model that is uh, more amenable to people like Sean Williams, people like Joe Biden, people who hold this progressive mindset where it is essentially known, right? It is, it is, it is known. It is, it is a canonical fact that um, our society is fundamentally biased and prejudiced. It always has been. And the only way that we can potentially fix it and create this better future is by using artificial intelligence to artificially um, uh, transform the way that, 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 our, that, our, that our world is structured. It, it, it's absolutely remarkable. Um, who's it being done by? Well, we know um, it's being done by these people. It is the global community. Right. So the, the politicians um, that we're all very familiar with, they're the salespeople, they're the ones fronting this stuff up. It's being delivered largely by private companies, including companies like Infosys, uh, which was founded by Rishi Sunak's father-in-law and where Sunak's wife continues to hold a $500 million stake. It's where the vast majority of his wealth comes from. Infosys, by the way, is a strategic partner to the World Economic Forum. And what's the end point of all of this? Well, um, Elon Musk being interviewed by Sunak last night. I mean, we've had a whole range of things happen this week. It's been, it's been a very busy week out there. So what did Musk have to say? So there will come a point where no job is needed. AI will be able to do everything. Humanity is rendered redundant, people. And the progressives have this concept of fully automated luxury communism. I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's something that I hear quite a bit. And that is ultimately uh, the point that Musk is talking about there. Humans won't have to do anything. And this is already here because he actually talked about in the same interview his own cars, the Tesla products that he's currently selling today as being endpoint applications for artificial intelligence. Right? That's what he views his vehicles as being. Um, final point, really interesting one. Uh, that interview between Sunak and Elon Musk was hosted by this young lady, Priya Lakhani, OBE, who Debbie and I also talked about earlier this year, who is the chief executive of an organization called Century Tech. And she was boasting at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change event that her technology platform was intervening with student misconceptions half a million times a week, right? So they want to use this technology to control everything, including your children. And um, I've just been reminded of this fantastic C.S. Lewis quote, uh, which I think sums up the mentality here really well, right? So of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. That those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, but they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And I'll leave it there. Okay, Ben, thank you very much. Uh, and just to end this AI section, um, let's bring uh, the uh, wonderful Earl of uh, Earl of, um, well, I do apologize, I've forgotten uh, which, which Earl he is, but anyway, he's a defense uh, minister, uh, and he uh, was looking at uh, countries and companies developing frontier AI uh, for uh, defense. Uh, he was looking at this yesterday. Uh, the MHRA is to launch the AI Airlock, a new regulatory sandbox for AI developers. Uh, I mean, there were announcements after announcements. They're calling this uh, motherload. Um, so uh, it's quite an impressive uh, set of announcements around this. It's pretty clear that the UK government has bought into this hook, line and sinker um, and very keen to roll it out as widely as possible. They are not intending to deal with any of the risks. Uh, and then finally, just to mention on this AI for good, uh, because uh, this is uh, all about uh, making sure that the Home Office uh, can control uh, the use of uh, AI-generated child sexual abuse imagery. 
so many, many announcements on this and uh, really nothing much, uh, to, no serious attempt to deal with the safety issues at all. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column is doing, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options for you to help us there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop and we would very much encourage uh, you, if you'd like to, to buy uh, a Christmas gift card for uh, people, buy people a membership for Christmas. Um, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, a couple of items on the UK Column website. Uh, this is Georgia Voters Group has uh, strong proof of major election breaches. Um, this is uh, Mark Anderson uh, speaking to Garland Favorito uh, from voterga.org. Uh, and uh, you can have a look at that interview there. Um, also, Debbie uh, speaking to Roger Meacock about uh, the use of the same type of uh, medical approach uh, that we've seen with COVID being used for uh, domestic animals. There's going to be a further interview looking at how this is being used within the farming community with farm animals as well. Um, this is uh, not just about humans. And of course, uh, the One Health uh, um, agenda makes that very, very clear. Okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, and just very briefly, Ben, if we could, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, so uh, you may remember FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, which collapsed at the back end of last year. Uh, the CEO and founder, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been found guilty on seven counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to launder money. He potentially faces decades in prison. And he's going to be sentenced in March next year. And uh, most interestingly, uh, he was the second largest individual donor in U.S. politics in the 2022 midterm elections, just behind George Soros. So the money that Bankman-Fried has been siphoning out of FTX has gone directly to funding the campaigns of politicians in the U.S. who are promoting uh, all of the agendas that we're being subjected to right now. Um, he also had the very explicit personal backing of people like Tony Blair, uh, Bill Clinton, a huge range of other political figures. And it's also worth noting that FTX was a strategic partner. Actually, I don't know if they were a strategic partner, but they were a partner of the World Economic Forum. Um, understandably, they are no longer listed as one on their website um, the prosecutor in the case said that while the cryptocurrency industry might be new, this kind of corruption is as old as time, which I think sums it up very nicely. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you. Now, uh, Vanessa, let's come back to Israel then. And uh, well, the question is, what is the success likely to be on the ground war? Um, well, I mean, a number of uh, military analysts or former U.S. intelligence analysts like uh, Scott Ritter, I think also Philip Giraldi, Larry Johnson have been saying very clearly, as have I, um, that uh, a ground invasion into Gaza is effectively challenging the Israeli forces with guerrilla urban warfare, something that they've not faced previously. Um, they've been up against unarmed civilians uh, in the West Bank largely. And um, there was an interview on Sky News that I recommend everybody watch with an IOF soldier where he actually confirms that, uh, one, that he fears Hamas can never be wiped out. And I reiterate, Hamas is only one faction. Um, so he's talking about the Palestinian resistance, both in West Bank and in Gaza. And Mike, you asked me, um, what the tunnels were like. I mean, I entered through the tunnels into Gaza in 2012, just before uh, the Zionist aggression of 2012. Um, they're, they're varied. Um, some can, can bring through vehicles, large vehicles, arctics. Some are smaller. Um, an RT reporter managed to get into uh, the resistance tunnels in Gaza. So that's the first part of the report. And then the second part, just demonstrating how difficult this war will be for the Israeli forces, um, demonstrating the use of the tunnels to come out behind the enemy lines and to take out um, a, a Zionist uh, tank. So it shows both the tunnels and the strategy. 
القدس الذراع العسكري لحركة الجهاد الإسلامي ستون مترا تحت الأرض عمليا بالطبع الجدران هي من الإسمنت بالإضافة إلى السقف المقوس والذي يمنح هذه الأنفاق قوة كبيرة جدا والمعلومة التي عرفتها ربما So yeah, I mean, just to reiterate this, this ground invasion, um, they haven't actually advanced very far and there have been high casualties, many of which we don't think are being uh, reported for obvious morale reasons uh, inside uh, Israel. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's come back to the UK and uh, the National Security Technology and Innovation Exchange, NSTIX. I don't know how many people know what this is, so let's just uh, bring their definition on screen. It's a government-led science, technology, and innovation partnership that enables coherent and agile delivery of innovative tech, uh, national security outcomes through a coordinated and systematic approach to research and capability development. So there you go. It's The key thing is here, it's about uh, creating cooperation, uh, not only uh, within government and government agencies, but across the public sector, the private sector, academics, academic science, technology, and innovation communities. So they're setting up these uh, co-creation uh, networks, uh, as they describe them, uh, and co-creation spaces. Uh, this is part of the fusion doctrine, which came out in the uh, uh, Defense Review in 2018. Uh, they foster and collaborative, they foster open and collaborative development of user-driven technology solutions around a cross-country, sorry, a cross-cutting theme critical to national security. That is how they describe it. So let's look at the themes that they are particularly looking at here. And the first one on the list is behavioral and social science. So all the behavioral science that we saw being rolled out uh, during COVID is very much part and parcel. That's the first thing on the list for these co-creation networks. Uh, cyber, uh, data science and artificial intelligence, the th uh, another theme from today, uh, defense innovation, operational technologies, uh, protective security, quantum computing, and space. Um, but we see the same old agendas, uh, same old policy areas uh, appearing uh, time and again with, with, with each of these uh, kind of uh, innovations. Uh, now, let's uh, go back to Israel again, Vanessa. Yeah, so um, what I basically also wanted to talk about, which was related to, to um, what you mentioned, Mike, which is this, sort of growing uh, normalization of ethnic cleansing and genocide as being part of the language. Um, Mondeweiss published a report on two uh, reports uh, laying out a blueprint for the complete ethnic cleansing of Gaza. First of all was the Mizgav Institute for National Security and Zionist Strategy, but the second and probably the more important one is the Israeli Intelligence Agency report um, which basically lays out three steps of ethnic cleansing. First of all, to, to erect tent cities in uh, the Southwest Territories, um, so presumably within the Sinai. The two, humanitarian corridor. I, I, I would question uh, that uh, naming um, to obviously uh, direct Palestinians from Gaza into the Sinai Desert, eventually to build cities in the Sinai and to create a seven kilometer wide, what they call sterile zone to prevent the Palestinians coming back. So this is clear ethnic uh, cleansing. And then let's have a look at the language of 
Republican Congressman Brian Mast in describing the situation in Gaza. Just uh, roll the video. As a whole, I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. I mean, just quite extraordinary language coming out now, both from, from both sides of the Atlantic um, regarding civilians in Gaza, bearing in mind that I think it's almost 4,000 children have now been killed um, in the Israeli indiscriminate bombing. Israeli Minister of Heritage, uh, Amichai Eliyahu, North Gaza is more beautiful than ever. Blowing up everything is amazing. When finished, we will hand over the lands of Gaza to soldiers and settlers who live in Gush Katif. So again, uh, very much referring to ethnic cleansing. And then I want to come back to, I know you mentioned it on Wednesday, Mike, to Suella Braverman's um, statement. Um, if we can just roll the video, I've cut it short, but I, I want to focus on what she says about the march itself. The Met in terms of the London protests is doing everything it can to enforce the law robustly enough or do you think that certain regulations around extremism and terrorism need to be changed or modified as the Met Commissioner seems to be suggesting might need to happen? Well first of all let me explain what we've seen over the last few weekends. We've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. Now, secondly, the police and the crime. I mean, you know, this is just extraordinary from Braverman. Not one mention of the tens of thousands that have been injured, the thousands that have died in Gaza under indiscriminate bombing that is described by more um, measured statements from global leaders like President Putin, um, the, the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, various other countries not connected to the Middle East necessarily, um, who have very clearly stated that, that this is unacceptable under international um, law. And I think also what's quite incredible is she refers to the victims that is the largest number of victims since the Holocaust. So again, we have this Holocaust framing, the victimhood of Israel, although of course it's an occupying force and under international law, as Nabentia told us, it doesn't have the right to self-defense. And Palestinians do have the right under international law to resist violent occupation. So, you know, we have a complete negation of international law here from um, Braverman and extraordinary racism, in my opinion, from somebody whose country, her own country of origin, was, was obviously colonized um, by the colonialists that are now backing the war against the Palestinians and backing the Zionist project. So, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary times we're living through, really. There doesn't seem to be... Um, a, a clear head anywhere in the West that is not taking us towards regional war and um, global war. And this is what Dennis Kucinich, of course, former campaign advisor for Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr., said uh, in his most recent Substack article, and I recommend people uh, go to it to read the full article and the recommendations that he gives for pushing back against what is happening. So he says, through illegal war after illegal war, the U.S. has demoralized and demonized itself against the rest of the world. It is the U.S. and Israel against the Arab, Muslim, Chinese, Russian, Iranian, Turks et al. The probability of nuclear war is higher than it has been since the Cuban Missile Crisis of October the 16th to the 28th, 1962. Premier Nikita Khrushchev found an off-ramp averting annihilation. Today, the price of nuclear vengeance and retribution would be the deaths of at least 5 billion people and the end of life on planet Earth. Sobering words from Kusinich, somebody that has the experience to be able to utter them. 
And this was um, a protester on one of the marches, and I found her message very poignant. When you need to have hundreds of protests just to tell the world that bombing children is not okay, that's when you know humanity has failed. And I totally endorse that message. Okay, thank you. Uh, and I just wanted to end this uh, segment with uh, with this because many people were wondering what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's speech at the United Nations General Assembly uh, was about, uh, talking about the new Middle East, the re restructuring of the Middle East, and so on. Uh, and uh, well, uh, it was just seemed a little out of context. Uh, but uh, Egypt, uh, an Egyptian MP, uh, this is uh, Mustafa Bakri. Uh, who's a member of the House of Representatives in Egypt, is now claiming that uh, the current uh, crisis in Gaza, according to this article in the Egypt Independent, goes deeper, uh, and that uh, one of the outcomes of this is potentially uh, the, the Ben-Gurion Canal project, which is a Cold War project, but has more or less been forgotten about since then, and suddenly back in the headlines, as it were. Um, so he's saying uh, that he was giving a speech at an emergency plenary session in the House of Representatives. He said that the project is called the Ben-Gurion Canal and goes from uh, uh, Eilat to Gaza and back. Uh, so let's just look at the map uh, and you can see uh, the blue line showing the uh, uh, Ben-Gurion Canal. And so he is suggesting that that is part and parcel of, of what is going on here. Now, of course, he's... Uh, uh, particularly concerned that this is uh, in uh, competition with the Suez Canal. Uh, but uh, maybe an extra, we can talk about a, a little bit more about this with Vanessa, because I think the Belt and Road uh, is a very key part of this story that isn't getting any of the coverage in the Western press. The overlay that I've put on there shows another uh, route that was proposed in the past, uh, which is a bit straighter than the one that, that was uh, in the under underlying uh, map there, but nonetheless ends in roughly the same Place. So we'll talk about a little bit more about this in extra. Uh, now, back in June, uh, this event took place, the Ukraine Recovery Conference. And of course, Ukraine has completely fallen off the uh, headlines, as Brian has been pointing out over the last couple of weeks. Uh, that particular uh, war apparently uh, doesn't count anymore, as far as Western media is concerned anyway. But one of the things that was announced in June at the Ukraine Recovery Conference was the idea of uh, um, insurance for anybody that was wanting to do business uh, in uh, the in Ukraine to in restructuring and so on. So uh, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is the organisation that the UK has now partnered with in order to provide this government-backed insurance, war-related risk insurance. Uh, to, so this is for private investors uh, to go into Ukraine and benefit from the fact that Ukraine has been destroyed and there's opportunities there for profits uh, through rebuilding. Um, so this is uh, the uh, signing, uh, signing ceremony that took place a couple of days ago. Uh, the EBRD pleased UK signed war risk insurance statement of, of intent with us to help UK companies do business in Ukraine. Ukraine is the gift that keeps on giving uh, and uh, lots of money to be made there. Uh, let's come back to you, Ben, and uh, C40 Cities. Yeah, so um, C40 Cities um, is uh, another one of these global uh, organizations. It's a network of nearly 100 world-leading cities that are united in action, uh, maybe in lockstep even, to confront the climate crisis and create a future where everyone can thrive. Again, it's so difficult to argue with any of this stuff when they put it so beautifully. Um, the chair of C40 Cities is our very own Sadiq Khan. And he very proudly talks about the fact that he's the chair of C40 Cities on his Twitter profile. Uh, he's been talking um, over the past couple of days about the great success of his ULES scheme um, and uh, the, uh, the fact that um, there are now uh, the vast majority of vehicles in London meet ULES standards. You might want to hit forward, actually, Mike, to get the animation to work. There you go. Look at that. The arrows are all going in the right direction, aren't you? Clever boy, Sadiq Khan. Um, what he doesn't mention is that this is in large part a revenue generating exercise for him. I believe that he's generating about three quarters of a million pounds a day in revenue for his organization, for the mayor's office, from ULES. It's also probably the least popular policy that's come out of City Hall 
in living memory, right? People really do not want this, but there is a massive drive towards it. We all know what it's about. Um, and it's getting uh, a lot of a, 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 a lot of backing, even uh, now, um, e- even though it's only recently launched, even from academia. Uh, so this study came out from the University of Bath a couple of days ago, which, um, again, despite the fact that this is a very relatively new initiative, they've already found that the policy interventions have significantly reduced levels of key pollutants, leading to improvements in physical health and mental well-being, and everything seems to be driving towards this kind of scheme being rolled out further across the UK and elsewhere internationally, if C40 have got anything to do with it. Uh, Yes, indeed. Okay, well, um, look, I want to uh, end just by reminding everybody uh, about this piece of legislation, because, of course, uh, when we are talking about... uh, protest marches, demonstrations, and so on. Inevitably, at every demonstration, there is a fringe element there which may be behaving in a way which most people don't agree with. And those are the sets of behaviors which end up in the headlines in the mainstream press uh, and generates the kind of angst uh, and uh, problems that we were discussing at the very beginning of this program. But just just remember that uh, not too long ago, the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill uh, 2019 to 21 was brought through Parliament and it has uh, and eventually received royal assent. It is now an act of Parliament, and this permits uh, agents of the state to break the law. Uh, in it's not clear what what the purpose of that law breaking is for, but it's this is all about infiltrating movements and uh, pursuing a government agenda within movements. Uh, and let's just remind ourselves about what the text of this bill said, a bill to make provision for and in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of covert human intelligence sources. This is people working for the state, getting involved in campaign groups uh, and other protest organizations and so on. Um, And at the time that this was being discussed, if you remember, Uh, There was no particular limit on the type of criminal conduct that was permitted by this. There were no limits on that in the legislation itself. Uh, And if we look at the number of uh, organizations that are entitled to authorize this kind of criminality, some very surprising names on this. Names that aren't surprising, perhaps like any police force in the United Kingdom, the National Crime Agency, uh, the Serious Fraud Office, uh, any of the intelligence services, So far, any of Her Majesty's forces, so far we might not be surprised by this. Uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care, uh, the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, the Competition and Markets Authority, the Environment Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, the Food Standards Agency, the Gambling Commission. Uh, So these are the types of organizations entitled to uh, break the law or to have agents, their agents break the law. And the question has to be, uh, for what purpose? Um, Really, at this point, it is staggering to me that uh, uh, this type of legislation has been allowed to get uh, passed without any serious pushback from the general public. Uh, I just want to get some thoughts from both of you. Ben, first of all, uh, I know you you weren't aware of this uh, until this morning. But it is really an incredible situation where uh, agents are put above the law uh, in order to try to drive certain behaviours in society. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's mind-boggling, actually. Um, and uh, essentially what they're saying is that, um, well, what the bill does, like there's, uh, that the, they are above the law. That's what they're saying. The state is above the law. Um, and what's really interesting, actually, is that even the, what, why, why on earth would the FCA be able to do this? You know, why would any of these regulatory agencies be able to do this? Um, I mean, actually, why would anyone be able to do this? But that list of names is absolutely astonishing. Um, and uh, what, what, what essentially we're looking at here is a state that is completely, utterly, entirely out of control. Yes. Vanessa, uh, finally, any thoughts? Are you muted? No, I'm not. All uh, right. No, you can. We can hear you now. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I lost you. So I, I just um, closed the link and came back again. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is extraordinary, and I think the point that I want to make about these marches, apart from the, the possibility of false flags, apart from um, the possibility of agent provocateur, and who will those agent provocateur be? Of course, we have to remember that Britain is responsible for sponsoring terrorism in the region, including uh, most recently in Syria, and that those terrorist factions are being given. Um, like back into uh, the UK. So um, we've seen various false flags on, on British soil. Um, so I think, you know, there is a huge danger of that. Yes, indeed. Thank you. So we've got to keep that in mind uh, when we're looking at the headlines in the coming days. Uh, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much to everybody that has joined us. Uh, thank you to Vanessa and Ben for taking part. We'll be back uh, for extra in a couple of minutes if you're a UK column member. Uh, otherwise, have a great weekend and we will see you at 1pm on Monday. Bye-bye.